Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. We would love to one day potentially have you on the show with us. Um, joining me on today's programme, of course, on what is unfortunately a wet and humid day here in the capital is Simon James. Simon is the owner and managing director of Atlantic Resource Recruitment Solutions, a Cardiff-based independent recruitment agency. Uh, Simon, welcome to the show. It's good to have you with us. Yeah, good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for coming on to the programme. Uh, not the nicest day for it, unfortunately, but uh, luckily we're inside and away from the rain. Um, I think a good place to start, of course, Simon, would be by addressing the wider situation that we find ourselves in as we record this in early July. Um, of course, in England, we're in a situation where on the 19th of this month, social restrictions are going to be going, but we are still living under some curtailment of our freedoms. And that's been the case across the UK since March of 2020. So, by and large, looking back over the whole sort of pandemic period, to what extent has COVID affected you and your operations at Atlantic Resource, would you say? Quite quite dramatically, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, I, obviously, we're slightly different here in, in Wales. Mm-hmm. Our, 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 our dates will be slightly different. And um, unfortunately, we are enjoying the sunshine. So apologies for your rain. <laughs> um, as far as, uh, as, far as the, the, our situation is concerned, it has been it has been hugely hugely affected. You know, fifty um, percent you know, of our business, if not potentially sometimes more, is made up of the hospitality events and catering uh, sectors, um, along with the um, supply to local authority schools. And as we all know, both of those uh, schools, not so much now, but uh, uh, certainly the hospitality catering section. Um, just was completely shut down. And when you're supplying staff to an industry that's closed, it makes it very difficult to um, to operate in the fashion that you're used to, uh, and sometimes actually impossible to operate at all. Uh, schools obviously was a situation that got hit for a, for a good period of time too, and again, all the all the staff that we would normally supply found themselves with nowhere to work, and, um, and obviously the consequences of that. You know, is a knock on. Um, so yeah, tough time. We're seeing we're seeing uh, the sun shine in more ways than one now as things start to open. Uh, however, the next the next problem uh, is the dramatic uh, short shortage of staff. Um, uh, we look at it we look at it regionally, but I think it's it's a it's a national situation. And uh, from some of the emails I've received. From outside of the UK, um, for certain disciplines, it could be you know far far wider uh, shortage of of staff for the hospitality and catering industry. Um, so yeah, it's who knows what's going to come next? Yeah, but, uh, if things don't change, we mm. we you know we could have a very large hole in this marketplace. 
Yeah, the hospitality and catering industry in particular has had a very, very tough time of it from 2020 to 2021 because it's been stricken, of course, by restrictions brought about by COVID. But that B word Brexit did come into full action in the beginning of this year, of course. And that's left essentially a huge recruitment shortfall in the sector, not just because it's harder to get EU workers into the British market, but also because there's that anxiety about COVID as well. um, And maybe people aren't as willing to travel to work in other countries and that's also something that we're going to have to sort of try and deal with 100 um the the the, the temporary market uh, has been decimated um, we've seen um over the years uh, 20 years that i've been working in this sector in recruitment and obviously prior to that as a chef myself um we've never seen this shortfall um you highlighted there that the you know, the staff coming in from other countries. So, yes, lots and lots of staff went home um, to spend lockdown and COVID problems, you know, with their families, and uh, are now either locked in their own countries because their countries might be in, um, you know, uh, positions where travel is stopped. They may be into countries that um, Britain don't aren't opening borders to. Plus the fact that you know they they if they can come back, um, how long have they got potentially before maybe we get another lockdown? You know, let's hope it doesn't happen. But but you know, we don't we haven't been guaranteed that the European staff, as we know, no longer uh, find it easy to get into the UK. Um, a visa and uh, sponsorship is required. So you know staff are less likely to want to visit the UK to work if there's if there's that hurdle. And I think for hospitality in particular, the amount of companies, certainly the smaller companies and, and individual companies that are able to pay to sponsor people to come into the country is going to be quite limited. Um, and, the, and the other part of the, of the temporary market is, is student um, staff. And, and if students potentially are working at home, they may not be in a situation where they need to work to pay for their accommodation and their living costs while at uni. Um, so those people are also not here to work either. Um, the, the biggest, the biggest shortfall that I think most of us have seen, and this may actually be far wider than the UK is a chef shortage. Um, being a, being a chef, an ex chef myself, you know, I understand how difficult that job is, even when things are going wonderfully well. But when you have uh, no job, nowhere to work, and no, 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 you know, certainly back last year and you know towards towards the beginning of this year, no idea whether you'll ever have a job doing what you know. Many have turned to other other disciplines. You know, many many have taken up other roles, whether it be delivery driving, whether it be a new trade. Some one one of one of my key staff has, has moved into construction. Um, guaranteed work. Uh, another very, very skilled chef decided to completely retrain um, into carpentry and cabinet making. He just had enough of, of, of no future. So what's happened now is that chefs are are almost Impossible, impossible to, to, to hire. Uh, ones that are in jobs 
even if that job is a job that they're not even keen on staying at, they're not going to leave because they're guaranteed or, or potentially guaranteed furlough if, if they're not allowed to work moving to a new company and that company might be the great company and they might be really happy to work for that new company but if, if we have a, a, a situation again they won't be entitled to their furlough so we're finding that people aren't moving to new jobs because the fear of having no income um, and, and as I said it's it's really 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 tough and you know, we've seen one of our own clients recently advertising themselves because we weren't able to assist them. And, you know, the, the type of advert that they're putting out is, you know, you can only you can only associate it with, you know, the type of footballer contracts. When a client is advertising for a chef and offering a thousand pound signing on bonus, then it, it, it clearly shows the desperation to find actually what is really, really, you know, difficult to find uh, on a good day, but to offer someone a bonus just to, just to join them, unheard of. It's incredible, isn't it? And when we think about sort of potential solutions to this issue, it's not just as simple as maybe going to the government and trying to apply for shortage industry status under the new immigration rules, is it? Because there's no guarantee that that's going to actually be granted for one part. And we are still in a period of economic stasis. So there are many difficulties of use outlined there and actually um, bringing people in. But also the solution isn't just a case of going into the domestic market and plucking stuff from there. Um, I think the reason being is because not just of that economic stasis, but also perceptions of the industry as well and that's something i think how lucrative the sector appears to the general public that also is going to have to be addressed by industry going forward isn't it the construction sector has already set about doing that and i think hospitality catering they've now got to try and follow suit with that haven't they but that is easier said than done ultimately 100 again yes um i i can see a gap uh, hole in this marketplace for a period of a good period of time. Um, as a young, as a young uh, student or someone looking to to move into a career, as I did many years ago, you know, at that time, chefing was something. Oh wow, you know, if you had a passion, you had an interest, you had a, a practical way of working. You know, chefing was something that was was you know, you wanted to go to college, you you wanted to study it. But anybody starting looking at it now, seeing what's happened for the last. 18 months or whatever um, or you know up to up to that period of time is going to say well why would I want to train to be in that industry because the only vision they've had is of of negativity and and enclosure um, so and also people aren't able to train you know at the moment people aren't you can't you can't learn a practical trade online um, I know people believe you can but you know I, I don't think you need, you can you need to be hands-on to learn a trade like that. You, you can't learn how to, you know, cook certain items uh, from a textbook. You have mm. to be able to feel, see, and touch and be involved. So if nobody's choosing to train, then how long will that gap take before it filters in new people into the industry? Um, and if people have, you know, and I know people out there are earning more money driving a delivery van than they can do doing the job that they had before, you have to ask whether, you know, the only people that may return are the ones that have 
such a strong passion to the job that that matters more than the income that they can earn. So right. hmm. I, you know, going forward, uh, we're going to see, we, we're, we're already seeing it. You know, cost of, of commodities is going up. Uh, so therefore industries are having to pay restaurants, hotels, having to pay a lot more for the commodities that they were used to. So their, their costs have gone up. Their margins have been shrunk. Their staff that they have got, some of them are demanding more money um, because they are, you know, a, a, less, a lesser of, of, of these individuals. The whole businesses are being, are being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And we know we've got more than a handful of clients at the moment who cannot offer either a food service at all or a food service to the level that they they're used to or used to or used to provide or wish to provide because they simply do not have staff to staff to supply or chefs to cook. Um, I, and I can't see uh, any any fair, fairly quick bounce back to that. Mm. It is going to take an awful amount of time for the industry to recover. I think that's very, very right. And that's something that we're going to have to get to grips with over the next few months, potentially even years. And I think what's also going to become really apparent within these sectors is that mental health considerations, which have become significantly amplified by the pandemic across all industries, are going to be incredibly important because these sectors have been afflicted far more than others. And if we're in a position where restrictions could return in the future, maybe in the winter periods where the flu season returns, those are going to be the first industries again to go, aren't they? So it may well be that there's still a lot of toing and froing with staff and they're going to have to be prepared for that. So, yeah, um, we, it will be it, those. These sectors will be the the first to be affected, and as 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 anybody that needs an income to pay their bills, to you know, feed their families, um, you're going to you're going to look after number one. You have to, and and I would say we have seen certainly over this period. Uh, many, 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 many of our hospitality staff applying for work within the sectors that are, you know, I, I wouldn't say anything is guaranteed, but the sector in healthcare, caring, because they know that the chances are that they'll have work throughout. Um, and and people are saying they're moving moving into into other sectors because they need they need they need a future. They need a guarantee of a future. Um, and and. In, in anyone's mind, why would you dedicate yourself to an industry which you have no idea whether you'll work or you won't work? Um, so, yeah, I think the how how it's going to be addressed, I'm I'm not quite clear yet. But mm. uh, something has to change. Um, and if if they look at immigration, um, and 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 slacken the the ability to move to this country. Um, will that help? Um, not necessarily, because would you then want to leave your home country to, to come to this country, to an industry that might close when you get here? Um, the only way they can guarantee is they can guarantee that uh, you know this industries and these similar industries will not be affected, which, of course, they can't. 
That's exactly right. Um, and there's a lot for the government to consider in that sense. Uh, but just before we do wrap things up talking about the, uh, the future now, um, I do want to just discuss Atlantic Resource just a little bit more specifically, Simon. I know that there's a lot of uncertainty going forward from here, but over the next 12 months, as hopefully we leave social restrictions behind, come what may with them potentially coming back in future, what are your priorities going to be as a business moving forward and where are you hoping to be by this time in 2022? We, we've, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to scale back now. Um, we did, we did, unfortunately lose some staff during this period we are looking to uh, rebuild slightly we are looking at interviewing new people to work here which is which is positive um, the sectors will be led by what sectors work but as a, as a business device diversifying into other sectors is, is is probably guaranteed that we're going to have to do so um, as with every other recruitment business I would have thought um, the problem with that is if we all, for example, diversify into, you know, 100% care and everyone's doing the same thing, the market will be swamped. Um, we diversified a little bit um, during the pandemic where we opened a new brand here uh, and a brand that, that took on, that, that, that guaranteed, uh, uh, you know, um, one of our colleagues' jobs by diversifying and opening up a new brand which, which deals with IT, um, but not as in recruitment, um, you're working on behalf of clients for their IT. So I can see that happening um, a bit more. Um, looking at other sectors, or maybe even looking at other other types of business um, that may not be related to recruitment, in order to ensure you know my staff have have a reasonably secure future. That's the key for us. Um, it, everyone wants to. Everyone wants to be successful. I would have thought, and 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 and, and then reap the benefits from that. But these times are different, and the key for us is to ensure that our staff, our internal staff, our hardworking, loyal, contracted staff, have a future. Uh, whatever whatever we have to do to achieve that. Come this time next year, I would hope that. You know, we would be back to at least three quarters of where we were prior to the pandemic. Um, and with a bit of luck, you know, new challenges and new sectors and, and, and new disciplines that we can work with, which will hopefully encourage new types of people into the business. Um, but we are awaiting and, and we will continue to wait for directives that will dictate where we can and cannot go to. Mm. So it's that period of limbo at the moment, isn't it? And I think as we start to sort of see the sort of fog lifting, as it were, and we understand exactly what some of those new industries might look like, I'd quite relish the opportunity, Simon, to welcome you back onto the programme and just catch up on how things are going, because it's been a real eye-opening and thought-provoking um, discussion having you with us today. I've really, really enjoyed it, and it just really casts some reality on what's going on out there within the recruitment sector at the moment. Well, no, I'll be I'll be delighted to uh, to, to join you again, um, and, uh, and and with a bit of luck, with with a little bit more positivity um, and some good news to, to share, um, you know, because 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 the whole country needs it. It needs it needs some positivity. It needs some good luck. It needs some some good ideas. It needs the good feeling because it's it's 
it's taken far more of a hitting than I think um, people are prepared to admit. Mm. Um, and sectors such as the ones we've discussed may or may not have, have been uh, fully understood and and very well un, unestimated the damage that will happen in these sectors because some of these sectors are hidden sectors. Mm. These staff work behind the scenes, so they may not be in the forefront and may not be considered as uh, as as obvious to look after as they should have been. Um, so, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, we look forward to it. Mm, fingers crossed, and I think you're right, we do need some real positivity after what has been a very, very turbulent year for our country. Uh, Simon, again, thank you so much for joining us on the programme, and since we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on until we do speak again. Yep, thank you very much, and, and obviously the same to, to you too. And I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning into today's show. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. Um, it was, of course, a pleasure to welcome Simon James, owner and managing director of Atlantic Resource Recruitment Solutions, onto today's show. And I hope you all enjoyed what was a compelling interview. Um, we, of course, enjoy bringing a diverse range of perspectives on leadership to our programme and therefore coming up next on the show will be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett who will be sharing his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead of us. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging and um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.